One of the things this does is it makes it pretty easy because you have one passage of Scripture. Even though I refer to about 150 more, uh, there's, <laughs> there's, this one, there's this one passage you can keep going back to. Uh, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He searches, and He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to God. So, have you ever been in a situation in which the words were inadequate and did not come? I just want you to think about that for a moment. Maybe you are sitting with a friend who has lost a parent or a child. What do you say in those situations? Generally, and and, and just some pastoral counsel, lots of times nothing is the right thing to say. (laughs) Okay. the the scriptures many of them know all those things but sometimes you just just your presence there is what they need you you sit in mournful silence many times with him both of you feeling the deep pain but you're unable to relieve the immediate tension through getting a handle on it by words because that's what we want to do we want to control the situation somehow and we want to we want to ease the tension by by giving the right words at the right time and they're just not there. You can't do it all the time. This is what prayer is like many times. In fact, this is what it's like for the most part, even though we do more than we realize. And taking our cues from this passage, in its context, we answered the question this, that in the last talk, what is prayer? And we learned that, it is while, that while prayer is talking to God, we are not trying to span this distance between us and the deity with our words. Rather, prayers are participation in the full life of the triune family of God. God has welcomed us into the divine conversation because we've been united uh, to the Son by the Spirit. So prayer is the response or even the fruit of the Spirit's activity in our lives. He has poured out the love of God in our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father, and we desire what He desires. Participating in the life of God means that we share His loves, His hates, His purposes, etc. These longings are given expression in prayer. Because the Spirit is the one who is generating these longings and compelling us to pray, we can be assured that our prayers are empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit worked with the eternal Word to create the world, and He is the same Spirit who is working with our words to rearrange the world according to the order of the kingdom of God. Now, so having been introduced to what prayer is, we turn to another aspect of prayer that Paul covers in this passage. And one I dare say that is rarely talked about when we talk about prayer, and that is our weakness in prayer. Now, Paul does this in the, in the context of encouragement. However, recognizing our weakness is necessary to understanding the encouragement that he gives. And so Paul speaks about here our limitations. Paul says that the Spirit helps our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Now, as, as I said some uh, earlier, Some might want to fudge this translation a bit and say something to the effect of, we don't know how to pray as we ought. That muddles the waters just a bit because we have been taught how to pray by Jesus himself as well as the other prayers in the scriptures. Paul is saying that we don't know exactly what to pray in a world that is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And that's the context of what he's talking about here in Romans 8. There are certain things that we don't know and therefore we can't give expression to them in words. 
Now, at first, it may not seem extremely encouraging to hear the, Paul, the apostle say, you don't know what to pray for as you ought. However, the statement is the truth, and it is ultimately liberating. You don't have to have all the answers. There are certain things that we in the world need. When Paul says that we don't know what to pray for as we ought, he is saying that there are necessities for the world that we don't understand or even know about. There are things that must be done, and we don't know what to pray for in those situations. These things are musts. We and the world can't do without them. This word used here is the same word that Jesus used when he taught his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Now, this is a great example of not knowing what to pray as we ought. For the disciples at that time, that was a category mistake for the Messiah to go and die. The Messiah doesn't die. He goes and conquers. Now, did they believe that Jesus would be victorious? Yes. Did they pray to that end? I'm sure that they did. In their weakness, though, they couldn't get their minds wrapped around how victory was going to be accomplished. This was so much the case that at one time Peter rebuked Jesus for talking like this. The disciples believed in Jesus and they trusted that, what he, w- that he was the one to bring in the kingdom of God, but they didn't understand what must or ought to be done to do that. It was only after the fact that they grasped what had happened and, and, and that God had answered their prayers in a surprising way. And so it is with us. While some of us may look down on the disciples for their lack of understanding, we all still do the same things. That's why we have the example of the disciples, because we are disciples. Do I need suffering? Yes. If it was necessary for Jesus, who was without sin, to learn obedience through the things that he suffered, as the writer of Hebrews says, then it is certainly necessary that I, who am a sinner, learn obedience through suffering. Do I know how to pray and ask God just what kind of suffering I need? It's intensity. It's duration. No. Do I know how to pray for suffering so that it will affect blessing for the lives around me? No, I don't. There are deep mysteries reserved for the wisdom of God. Mysteries we can only figure out to some degree after the fact, even if then. Understanding may wait to our resurrection. We never, we never get to the point that we know exactly what to pray in every given situation. We just don't know what God is doing. As we mature and and in the practice of prayer, having our heart's desires molded by God's own desires, we will become better at seeing how we can pray in this or that situation, as well as how God might work here or there. However, God has simply not given us the perspective to pray for things that are necessary in the world at all times. With our limited perspectives, we can't see how one person suffering over here is helping all these people over here. Or how this suffering is helping the person suffering himself. There are things that we just can't know. Do you know what to pray for an election? Well, who is supposed to be in office? We know how to pray in those situations. We want righteousness to rule our land for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for the best candidate who will come closest to helping the government make and enforce righteous laws and protect the church. But what if the country or the world needs a pharaoh? who will oppress the people of God because of their sin? What if the culture needs to be destroyed? We learn in Romans 9 that God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. His people needed Pharaoh for some reason. The world needed Pharaoh, 
But who would pray for such a thing? Do we know what to pray for concerning a virus that spreads throughout the world? Do we know what to pray for concerning our cultural institutions, including and most troubling the church being overrun with critical race theory, general wokeism, and the acceptance of the LGBTQ ABCs? Do we know what to pray? We know how to pray in these situations. We want good health for people and for the wickedness to be eradicated. But there are times in God's mysterious plan that he uses the wickedness of men to accomplish his purposes. Again, look at the cross. That kind of wisdom is way above our pay grade. And so we simply groan with the creation under the burdens of sin and its effects, looking for God to make all things work together for good because we love him and we are the called according to his purpose, which Paul follows up with in Romans 8.28. We are weak in our limitations. The good news is that God doesn't expect more of you than he has provided for you. God is not wanting you to get all of the information just right before he acts on your behalf or on behalf of the world. Being a Christian, even being a mature Christian, doesn't turn you into God or even a superhuman. In fact, it seems that the more one matures, the more he recognizes his weakness, just how much he doesn't know. That's where we hear at the end of Solomon's life as he reflects on his rule in Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, he's giving his son, his, his, his kind of his adolescent son, you might say, wisdom about how things generally operate in the world. And all that is true. His son's becoming a king and he needs to know these things. But the gaining of wisdom through Proverbs, and I believe Solomon knew this then, the gaining of wisdom through Proverbs or any of the other wisdom books is not to be taken as, if I get all this wisdom stuff down, then I will gain leverage in the world and make it operate the way I want it to. I will have a complete handle on life if I'm really wise. Wisdom many times does just the opposite. We know how things ought to be, but we can't make straight what God has made crooked. And that can be very frustrating if we ourselves don't have the right perspective. Wisdom does know generally how things in the world ought to be. But wisdom knows the world is arranged under the mysterious wisdom of God himself. True wisdom is not the ability to figure everything out and, in our case, know exactly what to pray and fix everything. Rather, true wisdom submits to the wisdom of God and has the perspective that we don't have. True wisdom trusts the wisdom of God and that he is working all things together for our good. We hear in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has made everything fitting for its time. Not the old Ray Stevens beautiful. God has made everything beautiful. He's, he has a plan for everything. He's the only one who knows how all the suffering, all the pharaohs, all the good things, all the sin, and whatever else fits together perfectly. Why is it that God's people keep suffering at the hands of the Muslims or the communists? Why is it that abortion still plagues our land? Why is it that we suffer agony as God's people, faithful people, while we see God, God-haters prospering? This has been a question for the ages. It's embodied in the Psalms that we pray. Why isn't God answering our prayers in the way that we think He ought to? Because we don't know what to pray as we ought. 
in these situations. Again, we generally know how to pray, and we may pray specifically with the, with the general in mind, but we must always submit our request to the ultimate wisdom of God, trusting that He is our loving Heavenly Father, and He knows what is best for us. And this is all very liberating, even if at times it may be frustrating. We only become frustrated in prayer and things not going the way we've prayed when we approach prayer in the wrong way, thinking that we know what's ultimately best for the situation and expecting, to God, expecting God to do what we said to do. The posture of prayer is one of humble submission to the will of the Father, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It is the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who in the face of being thrown into the fiery furnace say, say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you have set up. Praying with this kind of faith sees my life completely at the disposal of God's great purposes for the world. My life is not about personal comfort, first and foremost. My life is for the kingdom. In whatever way God wants to dispose of my life for His kingdom purposes, and consequently, however He answers my prayers to do so, that is what is best for me because it is what is best for the kingdom. If by my life or by my death, if by my suffering or by my health, I may serve your kingdom, Lord, make it so. That is the prayer of faith. Strong faith is not claiming deliverance from sickness, suffering, or believing that God will do what you want Him to do. It is knowing that God can do it, but He may choose not to. Praying in faith means, I would like to be delivered from this situation, and I ask you to do this for me. But if this is the way I must go, give me the grace to persevere in faith, never forsaking you. You are able to deliver me, but if not, this is how Jesus lived and prayed. This is how we are to live and pray. In the end, I know that whatever happens, it will turn out good for me, that somehow God is using all of it for my good in the greater context of accomplishing his good purposes for the entire created order that he loves. And, and that will be to my good in the end. I want what he wants. However, he wants me to serve that purpose. That's what I want. Even if I don't understand what he's doing. I don't have to know everything. All I have to know is the one who does know everything. God doesn't expect me to know everything and have all the answers that I may pray with precision. And he will only answer my prayers if I pray with precision. We pursue knowledge and wisdom because it is good for us. And it is good for our mission in the world. But we are not expected to attain the knowledge and wisdom of God himself. To think that we can is a fool's errand. It may be wrapped in pious clothes, but it is pride, pure and simple. I pray with knowledge I have of the general purpose and plan of God. Then I need not worry. God will answer in his own time and in his own way. Keep your weakness in mind when you pray. You are limited because you are a creature. These are not sinful limitations these are creaturely limitations non-sinful limitations god hasn't given us his creatures the ability to be him 
We are limited by time, space, and knowledge, and that's okay. Psalm 103 says He knows our frame. He, he, he knows that we are dust. We are limited. And we need to recognize that because when we do, we are operating in faith. We have the added limitation of being sinful creatures. Sin tricks our minds and our hearts and our thinking is clouding, our desires are stained. Recognize this when you pray. We are weak and because of it, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. So if we don't know what to pray for as we ought, why bother? Well, first of all, God commanded it to pr- commanded us to pray. Faith does what God commands even before it understands, even, even if it never really understands. Faith relies upon a loving Heavenly Father who will never give, up, give us purposeless activities, but who tells us what to do and not to do for our good. God's laws, God's commands are because He loves us. Not because He wants to squelch our fun, not because He wants to just see us jump through hoops, but because they are good for us. And so we do it because God commanded it, because we know that God is a loving Heavenly Father. And one reason that God has commanded it is that as His sons, rulers of the created order, we have a calling to present ourselves and the world over which we are taking dominion to Him. And we do this in prayer. Whatever form it may take, we do this, we'll do this tomorrow morning when we come and present ourselves, body and substance, to God. We present the dominion that we've taken all week long to Him. And we do it in prayer. God commands it. And so that's what we do in faith, even if we don't understand it all. We do it also because it is a family privilege. God has welcomed us into this divine conversation, even with all of our weaknesses, even though He could say, you know what, y'all are all stupid. You don't know what you're doing. You don't have any wisdom. He invites us to come into His presence because He loves us as His children. And He wants us, and you wouldn't do that as a father. And we're going to talk about that, or I'm going to talk about that in the sermon from Luke uh, on uh, tomorrow morning, Lord willing. But that as a father with his children, even though he hasn't attained to your wisdom or your knowledge, you want him there. You want him talking to you. Even if some of the things that he says are very silly in his weakness and his immaturity, you want him there because it is a family privilege somehow. And in some way, our part of the conversation has a purpose and it's good. And our loving Heavenly Father wants us there. In prayer is one way in which we join with God as co-laborers with him in his creation project. We are being mentored there. We're, we're interns or something. We're working with him. We do it also because it is an expression of our need and limitations. The act of prayer itself is the expression that we stand as needy creatures. We are dependent upon God. And this recognition is good for us. It keeps, us from a, it keeps us in a position of humility and is one weapon against the enemy of pride. It is very hard to stand with your chest poked out when you're on your knees. Because, another reason is because God changes us through prayer. As we seek God in prayer in the way that we are taught to pray in the Scriptures, our hearts are changed. We begin to see more clearly the needs around us And we learn how to groan with the Spirit. Also, we pray because God answers prayer. God hears us. 
And he answers prayers always, not always in the way that we have prayed specifically or what we have particularly desired, but he always answers prayer. Prayer anticipates with the act, participates with the activity of God in managing the world. Prayer is indispensable in our dominion mandate because God is ultimately the one who changes everything. God works through prayers to change the world. In the last meditation, I referred to Revelation 8, 1 through 5 as an example of what God does through prayer. Our prayers ascend to God and God uses them to shake up the world. You say, how does that work? We'll talk about that, but... Uh, Somehow, some way, in God's mysterious plan, in God's great working, He takes our prayers that ascend like incense from the golden altar. Angels mix it with all these things and they throw it to the earth and God shakes everything up. God is answering prayer. He shakes up the world. This is a way, this is one of the aspects of our dominion taking in the world, the fulfillment of our mission as man. Now, we have limitations. We are weak, and we don't know what to pray for as we ought. However, we are not left alone in our weakness. We have a helper. Paul assumes our weakness, but he encourages us by telling us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us by interceding for us with wordless groanings. Now, please note something that Paul does not say, as I've already mentioned. He does not say, because you don't know what to pray... The Spirit will come alongside you and give you the right words so that you will know exactly what to pray. That is not the kind of relief that He gives us in prayer. In fact, that's kind of just the opposite. It goes against the, it goes against the purpose. Because like I told you, like we talked about, in the, uh, like I introduced this whole talk, when we can put words to things, we sense some sense of control over it. When Adam was taking dominion, the first thing he did was name the animals. Why do, you, why do you do that? Because that's part of your dominion. If you have someone break into your house in, at night or you have some kind of strange sounds in your house at night, you're afraid until you realize it's your son who's just moving around the house. When you name it, you can, you can get a handle on things. When you can't name things, when you don't know what's going on in your body and you're waiting for a diagnosis from the doctor, you're tense. You don't know, because if, if you can name it, then you can start having a, a prognosis. You can, start, you can start dealing with the situation. You can get your mind wrapped around. Until you know those things, though, you can't get your mind wrapped around. And God doesn't give us words for everything. In other words, we don't have control over everything. And so giving us the words in prayer is not what God is doing for us. There's an interesting dynamic going on. It is as if for the present time, along with the rest of creation, groaning in this way is our calling. And words would give us a relief that we are not afforded at this present time. This is part of our suffering with Christ, it seems to me. And again, N.T. Wright is helpful here. When describing our groaning, he says, it is rather an agony that would come into the speech if only it could. Part of whose agony indeed is that to bring it to speech, to name the problem, and hence to envisage its solution would be a, to attain some measure of relief. Prayer not only expresses our deep suffering but prayer in one of its dimensions is a conscious 
entering into that place of suffering. It is where we suffer with Christ. When we can't put things, when we can't put it into words, maybe this is one of the reasons we don't discipline ourselves to pray more. Prayer is the place in which we join the Spirit and the creation in its groans under the effects of sin. Just before Paul says this about prayer, he tells us that the creation is waiting with eager anticipation, eager expectation, the revelation of the sons of God. Something's wrong in the world. The revelation of the sons of God, I take as being the time when the true atoms are set up in positions of rule over the earth, ordering everything according to the lordship of God's Son. The creation outside of man longs to be set right. It longs for the thorns and thistles to be gone. It longs for all that death to be gone. It longs to stop fighting against man. The creation outside longs to be set right and its effects to be lifted so that righteousness and consequent peace rules the earth for the creation to be in good order, for everything to be set to right. When man sinned, Paul said the creation was subjected to futility, unable to fulfill its purpose for which it was created because man whom he set over the creation to rule the creation failed and did not lead the creation into its joyful rest. And so from the time of the fall forward, the creation has been subjected to this futility, but subjected in hope of a faithful son of God to rule the world and establish God's order for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until that order is completely established, the creation groans under the sin and its effects. We see the disorder, we see the chaos, we see the fighting, we see all of the sin running rampant in the world, we see its effects, we see... Cultures coming apart at the seams. This is, this is that creation subjected to futility. And as faithful sons of God who are called to rule this creation, we share in the creation's hope, but we also share in its suffering because we're part of that creation and we are representatives of it. We take up the groans of creation, waiting for the redemption of our own bodies, at which time the entirety of creation will be put right. And until that time, we groan. And we, as representatives of creation, as the height of God's creation, as His image, and as sharers in that creation, we take up all of those groans of creation. And since, and since the Spirit is the one who creates the desires within us, He groans with us. We want to see God's purposes. He wants to see God's purposes. And He just joins us in our groaning. The Spirit doesn't relieve that groaning. That's not the kind of help we receive. While He does strengthen us as we take on a position of humble trust in our Heavenly Father, the Spirit simply comes and groans with us. He's not revealing God's specific plan to us, giving us the inside scoop on what God is doing on all this, relieving that tension. Help doesn't come in the form of information, but of intercession. The Spirit meets us and the creation at the point of our pain and joins us in our wordless groanings. Now, I don't completely understand what these wordless groanings are, but let me give you something that might help you understand better what is growing on so you can get words and really conquer this thing. Um, these groanings, whether, our, whether ours or the Spirit's, are something like wordless music. I love classical music. I listen to it 
all the time. Um, I listen to it while I work. I don't want words while I'm, while I'm trying to think of what to write and things like that, so I listen to wordless music. Some music doesn't need words. In fact, words would limit the music too much. They don't fit, or they would narrow the meaning of the music down too much. Music of this sort is articulate in one way. We generally understand the sadness or the joys that are being expressed in the music. But it is difficult to nail down its meaning precisely and therefore understand its goal. One of Frederick Chopin's most well-known works, his Sonata No. 2 for Piano and B-flat Minor, is like this. One section of that is called the Funeral March. Dum, 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 dum. All right? The music is enough. You just listen to it. You let it wash over you. If it had words, it would, it would limit it. it. It gives expression that words can't give. Words can't do what the groaning of that music does. Okay? And the music expresses our groaning. And we enter into it, not just in a, not in a, a rational, intelligent way in the sense of, in sense of uh, breaking everything down, but in a holistic way. We participate in it. We can't articulate the words, but we understand it. And dare I say in a Reformed context, we feel it. <laughs> yeah, Greg, Greg woke up. What a... He's getting all emotional, going back to his charismatic days. Um, The music expresses our groaning, but we can't articulate those words. These groanings, it seems to me, are something like that. They are the wordless music of creation that is being taken up up by the Spirit. And Spirit and music certainly go together all throughout Scripture and also in Tolkien and Lewis. Um, But uh, the Spirit is very musical, and so I think it's, it's a decent analogy. The Spirit tunes up, tunes up these groanings that are in us, putting the right fundamental notes so that our groanings harmonize with His, and He performs the music before the Father on our behalf, and that is His intercession. Sorry if you're not musically, uh, <laughs> musically attuned. Um, uh, but it's the, it's the only way I, I know to describe this. Intercession is simply praying on behalf of one another, and that's what the Spirit does, and, and that's what He's doing for us. He takes our deepest desires, and He puts the right notes with them so that it harmonizes perfectly before the Father. He plays that music before the Father, and the searcher of hearts, who is the Father, He knows the mind of the Spirit. He understands this music. He interprets this music, so to speak, And it doesn't even have to have those words. And he understands it. And he knows what to do with it. The Spirit is in perfect harmony with the Father and the Father with the Spirit. And they are on the same sheet of music. And they both know what the music means and what it is intended to accomplish. And again, this is my halting attempt to imagine what is happening in the mystery of prayer and the groans of our groans and the groans of the Spirit. Paul's words of encouragement are words of assurance for us in prayer. Our weakness is not the last word concerning our prayer. Our weakness is encouraged by our assurance. 
Paul speaks with no uncertainty about what happens in prayer. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. If the Spirit is praying with us and for us and the Father knows the mind of the Spirit, we have the assurance that our prayers are not only being heard, but they're going to be answered. If you read that whole context of Romans 8, you'll see that they are indeed answered. And that's what Paul is talking about. All things work together for good. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus, all those things are assurance that are rooted right here in this prayer, saying, look, your prayers are going to be answered. All these groanings that you have for all of these things, they're going to be answered. Ultimately, we're praying for God's grand purpose to be accomplished in the world. We are praying for God's righteous rule to be manifested through His faithful people in the world for sin and its effects to be defeated. We are praying that God will use us, whether in sickness or in health, life or death, to work toward this end. We who accept the providence of God in good times and bad are assured that indeed all things, again, are working together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. So our assurance is rooted, first of all, in God's righteousness. The letter of Romans is concerned principally with the righteousness of God. That is how God has done what is right in accord with His covenant. Because that was a big question in this Jewish-Gentile mix in the city of Rome, in the Christian church. We don't have time to go into this in much depth, but the big question that Paul addressing, is addressing in Romans is just this, as he introduces himself to the Roman church, hoping to establish a, a, a point, a, a home base to take his mission to Spain. God's promises established in his covenants from the beginning anticipated the man inheriting glory, kingly dominion over the created order that God intended for Adam in the beginning. Now, each Adam that God raised up... Uh, fell short of this glory that he intended. In fact, Israel not only fell short, but Israel intensified the problem of sin. The Israel, who was supposed to be a light to the nations, became darkness, and because of that, that darkness, that darkness of sin deepened to its lowest point, to its greatest point in Israel. And God has revealed his righteousness through the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Namely, that Jesus has been declared Lord of the creation. There is a man now, the second Adam, the last Adam, who is now reigning over creation. This is the righteousness of God that is revealed. He has done what is right. He has fulfilled his promises. Romans is something of a letter that puts God on trial or puts God in the dock. Not in a blasphemous way, but in a way that reveals that he is indeed faithful to fulfill everything he's promised in and through Christ Jesus and his people. If God's righteousness has not failed at this point, if he has been faithful to his covenant, having never failed to make good on his promises, will he fail to hear and answer the prayers of those who are in Christ, groaning with the Spirit? Paul, having proved that in no way can God God be declared unrighteous, is certain that the Spirit will indeed help us in prayer, and the Father who is in tune with the Spirit will hear and answer the prayers of his people so that all things will indeed work together for good. I'll emphasize the promises of Jesus made more in the sermon on Sunday, but Jesus told us, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
In that day you will ask in my name, and I, will, I, and, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and I have believed that I came, and, and believed that I came from God. John reiterates this, and Jesus, those are Jesus' words in John 16. And John the Apostle reiterates this in his epistle. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So we are commanded to ask, and that command is given with the assurance of a promise that when we ask anything in Jesus' name, anything that is consistent with his character and kingdom rule in the world, he will answer us, giving us what we desire. One specific prayer that we pray often in which God's righteousness is demonstrated is our confession of sins. Here is what John says about the confession of our sins. If we confess our sins, God who is faithful and righteous, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What reformed guy would tell you that your sins are forgiven because, God, because it's a matter of justice with God? We think of justice only in terms of some type of retributive justice, some type of punishment. God is faithful to forgive our sins because He is righteous, because He is just. God is righteous to forgive our sins. God always does the right thing according to His covenant. And when we confess our sins, because He has promised to forgive our sins, it would be unrighteous of God not to forgive our sins. Because He has promised forgiveness in Christ Jesus. He cannot fail to forgive His children who come in confession and repentance. To fail to do this would mean that God is not living up to His promises, that God is not righteous. That can never be. God is faithful to His covenant. He is righteous. He will always do what is right, which means that He will always do what what He's promised. He will never fail to perform it. We are assured by the righteousness of God that our prayers are heard and answered. But assurance also finds roots in our righteousness. You heard that right. We can have have assurance because of our righteousness, our own covenant faithfulness in Christ Jesus. As we heard in Jesus' words just now, the Father hears us because we love Jesus. We are those who have pledged our allegiance to Jesus as Lord, committing ourselves to His kingdom agenda. We are those, as Paul talks about in Romans, who suffer with Christ so that we may enter into His glory, into His rule. He just said that in Romans 8, 18. We are those who are led by the Spirit, He said in Romans 8, 14. We are those who love God, He says in Romans 8, 28. We stand with Christ and in His righteousness, being faithful to Him. And because we stand with Him in loving loyalty, we are righteous. We are righteous by faith in Christ Jesus. Understanding assurance of answered prayer as being rooted in our righteousness, our covenant faithfulness, is not some novel idea. We hear it throughout the Psalms in one version or another. The Psalms, God's prayer book given to His people to pray the prayers and learn how to pray, teaches at places to pray, Vindicate me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and the integrity that is in me. For instance, in Psalms 7 and 26. David is assured that he has been faithful to Yahweh and his cause. 
He has confessed his sin where God is commanded to confess his sin, and that is part of his covenant faithfulness. Because of this, he expects Yahweh to hear his prayer and answer and vindicate him. Why? Because he is standing on the side of Yahweh. He is loyal to him. The wicked have by their words and deeds declared David to be unrighteous, not to be fit to be God's son to rule. He is not faithful, they said. They're bringing an accusation against him to God. He's not a faithful Adam. He deserves to be dethroned. He doesn't deserve to inherit what God has promised for his faithful sons. So David takes his case to God's court in prayer, and he expects vindication for God's rule in his, faithful, in his favor because David has been faithful to God. We are faithful, we who are faithful to Jesus, who have pledged our loyalty to Jesus as Lord and are living according to his kingdom agenda. We pray these psalms and prayers like them with the same fervency and expectation. If you are faithful to Jesus as Lord, then you can pray with assurance that God will hear and answer your prayers. This is part of what it means to pray by faith. It's not simply that you're believing hard enough, that you really got it in your mind, you really screwed up enough courage to, or screwed up enough belief, assurance that you're really going to be heard. Praying in faith means that you're standing on the side of Jesus in this, that you're actually consistent with his name and that you're and that your loyalty is to him and his cause and his agenda and when you pray like that you are praying in faith you're living consistently with what you're saying and you're praying consistently with uh with his agenda again this is what it means to pray in faith you believe god's promises given to his faithful people and you ask god to fulfill those promises to his faithful people of whom you are one This assurance doesn't mean that your mind now is going to be completely settled and that you will experience peace like a river, okay? As Calvin says concerning assurance in prayer, but assurance I do not understand to mean that which soothes our mind with sweet and perfect repose, releasing it from every anxiety. For to repose so peacefully is is the part of those who, when all affairs are flowing to their liking, are touched by no care, burn with no desire, toss with no fear. But for the saints, the occasion that best stimulates them to call upon God is when, distressed by their own need, they are troubled by the greatest unrest and are almost driven out of their senses until faith opportunely comes to their relief. For among such tribulations, God's goodness so shines upon them that even when they groan with weariness under the weight of present ills, and also are troubled and tormented by the fear of greater ones. Yet relying upon His goodness, they are relieved of the difficulty of bearing them, and are solaced in hope for escape and deliverance. It is fitting, therefore, that the godly, man pray, that the godly man's prayer arise from these two emotions, that it, it also contain and represent both, that is, that he groan under present ills and anxiously fear those to come, yet at the same time take refuge in God, Not at all doubting, he is ready to extend his helping hand. It is amazing how much our lack of trust provokes God if we request of him a boon that we do not expect. Our faith looks to God in prayer, especially 
when we are distributed, in, excuse me, when we are disturbed in mind and body. Faith looks away from our own feelings to the one who has never failed. So, dear saints, pray. Pray with full, full recognition of your weakness, but pray with the assurance that the Spirit is helping your weakness. He is harmonizing your prayers with His own desires and desires of the Father. And He answers, and as He answers, your life is being more and more tuned to the music of God Himself, shaping you and the world around you into the fuller expression of the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.